Globin is a monthly subscription of fair trade goods from all around the world. Each artisan box is a curated themed collection of handmade items for the home. These can include everything from Moroccan ceramics to handwoven Mexican baskets to tea, coffee, and food items. Globin is the most customizable subscription box. It's a verified member of the Fair Trade Federation, which means they pay artisans a reliable wage which covers all of their basic needs. If you're still looking for the perfect Mother's Day gift, be sure to check out Globin right now. There is still enough time and plenty of boxes for you to choose from to find what mom will love. To get $20 off your first box on any three-plus-month subscription, head to Globin.com and enter the code TCFC at checkout. Once again, to get $20 off your first box on any three-plus-month subscription, head to Globin.com and enter the code TCFC at checkout. We would like to welcome to the club our most recent Patreon supporters, Daily, Tomas, Anna Z, and Raven. If you want to join the club too and gain exclusive ad-free access to all of our episodes and to patron-only content, head to patreon.com slash tcfcpod. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. There are approximately 750,000 registered sex offenders in the United States. These predators are bound by law to check in when they move, so children in the community can be protected. Unfortunately, the registry and prison does not always work for some offenders. Such was the case on June 21, 2013, in Jacksonville, Florida, when a repeat offender selected his next victim. Okay. Onto the show. On Friday night, June 21st, 2013, Cherish Periwinkle was shopping at Dollar General with her mother, Rain Periwinkle, and her two younger sisters. The next day, Cherish was supposed to travel to California to visit her father, Billy Giroux. So, her mother wanted to find her a new dress to wear. While checking out, Rain had to put some things back because she did not have enough money. An older gentleman in the store offered to purchase a dress for her and said he was just waiting on his wife. He even showed her his driver's license and said his name was Don. He explained he had a gift card he would use. The group waited in the parking lot for 30 minutes, during which time Don's wife did not show up. After 30 minutes, he suggested they all go to Walmart to meet his wife there. Don looked Rain in the eyes and assured her she was safe with him. However, he made no such assurances about her children. The group got into his white van and went to the Walmart on Lem Turner Road. As Rain and her three daughters put clothes and shoes into the buggy, Don milled about. At one point, Rain asked him where his wife was, and he said she was on her way. Rain, her daughters, and Don spent two hours in Walmart when the younger girls started to get fussy. Rain said they were hungry, and Don offered to buy them burgers from the McDonald's in the store. Shortly before 10 p.m., Don and Cherish walked to the front of the store to go get McDonald's. Rain never saw her daughter again. When the store closing announcements were made over the loudspeaker, Rain began to panic because they had not returned. 
At 11.18 p.m., Rain called 911 and told the operator that Cherish had been taken. The operator asked what she meant, and Rain said, taken by a stranger. Rain went on to explain she'd met a man at Dollar General who offered to take them shopping, and that she only went because he said his wife was going to be there. Rain could not recall what Cherish was wearing because she was so panicked. The dispatcher asked Rain for a description of the male, and Rain said he was a white male with white hair and dark eyebrows. She said she'd had a bad feeling about Don, but allowed him to take Cherish to the dressing rooms twice, and now she felt like a fool. Rain told them he drove a white van, but had no details of it, other than that there was carpet inside. She told the dispatcher that when she got to the checkout, she realized Don wasn't there, and that she hoped he wasn't raping Cherish right now. Rain tried to hang up, but the dispatcher said no and asked where she was. Rain was in front of the Walmart, where some employees were talking to her other two young daughters who were hungry. Rain said that Don was showing too much attention to Cherish, citing a pair of women's shoes he suggested they buy. These were tall women's shoes, and Rain said she knew now that he was grooming her. She added, I hope to God he doesn't kill her. I hope to God he doesn't rape her. Rain began panicking again and said she was wasting her time talking on the phone. She needed to calm down so that she could remember what Cherish was wearing. The operator told her to stay on the phone. It wasn't a waste of time, and deputies were on their way. Rain remembered that the van had some type of stripe around it. She said it wasn't really metal, but maybe a sticker. Rain said she didn't see the van in the parking lot. She stayed on the phone until she saw two patrol cars arrive, and the dispatcher said to go speak to them. The responding officers arrived at 11.28 p.m., eight minutes after the call initially went out. At 11.36 p.m., a bolo, or be on the lookout, was issued for the vehicle and victim. At 11.41 p.m., an air unit was requested. At 11.45 p.m., homicide was called. The homicide department covers not only murders, but also is the responding unit for abductions, suicides, and undetermined death. Another bolo to adjacent counties was issued at 11.57 p.m. and midnight. At 12.05 a.m., the on-call homicide detective contacted the patrol supervisor and found out that video surveillance had been reviewed, and it was confirmed Cherish had left with Dawn in a white van. Shortly before 1 a.m., officers were checking area hotels and motels, as well as the residences of registered sex offenders. A command post was established in the Walmart parking lot. At 2.20 a.m., the homicide sergeant notified his supervisor that an Amber Alert was needed. Eleven minutes later, the homicide lieutenant contacted the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or FDLE, and they began working on the dialogue for the Amber Alert. At 2.40 a.m., Cherish's information was entered into the National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, database, which automatically sent a notification to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Washington, D.C., Meanwhile, the homicide lieutenant and FDLE were still working on the Amber Alert. At 3.15 a.m., the assistant state attorney was notified of the situation, and at 3.30 a.m., the suspect was identified as Donald J. Smith, a registered sex offender whose mother owned a white Dodge 1998 van. 
a request for a news conference was sent out to local media outlets at 3.34 a.m. The press conference was held in front of the Walmart. Rain was shown a picture of Don Smith, and she positively identified him as the man she had been with earlier. Police provided the information they had and continued working behind the scenes, searching the suspect's home and speaking to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. At 5 a.m., another press conference was held to update the information that the victim had been abducted by a registered sex offender. Between 6.20 a.m. and 6.35 a.m., the deputy chief, chief, director of FDLE, and undersheriff were notified of the situation. The media was constantly updated with information regarding the case so that it was on the news at 7 a.m. At 8.34 a.m., a 911 call was received from a caller on Rutgers Road, close to the Highlands Baptist Church. The caller said that at 7.20 a.m. that morning, they had seen a white van matching the one on the news reports. She said the van was backed all the way up in some brushes. The caller was worried that the person had dumped something, but had left by the time the call was placed. When police arrived on the scene, they noticed tire tracks and crushed vegetation. They spray-painted the tire tracks orange so they would be more evident in photographs. At 8.57 p.m., the white van passed a patrol officer who was working a traffic accident on I-95 southbound. At 9.05 p.m., Don Smith was stopped by police at I-95 and Forest Street and taken into custody without incident. Cherish was not in the van. Don still had the same clothes that he was wearing in the surveillance video from the night before, but his shoes and pant legs were wet and covered in grass and mud. Don refused to tell the police where Cherish was. He did tell the police Cherish got into his van, but jumped out at a red light. Don soon clammed up and demanded an attorney once he reached the interview room. At 9.08 p.m., canine units leave the scene of the arrest and respond to the location on Rutgers Road. At 9.20, canine units found the body of Cherish Periwinkle. She was in a creek off Broward Road, jammed against a tree and covered in brush. Records state she was naked from the waist down. Investigators obtained a warrant to do a sexual assault kit on Don, which included DNA swabs from his mouth, fingernails, and penis. Photographs of various minor cuts and abrasions were taken, including photographs of his penis. Dr. Valerie Rao, medical examiner, later testified bruises on his penis were consistent with somebody forcefully asked to do oral sex. It came as no surprise that Don's DNA and semen were found on Cherish's body. The autopsy performed on Cherish determined she had suffered trauma to multiple parts of her body, including the face, head, and genitals. Cherish had been strangled to death. Donald Smith was charged with sexual battery, kidnapping, and first-degree murder, which is punishable by death in the state of Florida. Don Smith had a long charge sheet, including arrest for theft, burglaries, and drugs, as well as for sexual offenses. His first arrest was when he was 17 and he burned a stolen car. His first crime against a child was when he was just 20 years of age and he masturbated in front of two girls, aged 5 and 8. He pleaded insanity but was found guilty anyway. In 1992, in the span of one day, he tried to coerce a 13-year-old girl into his van, and when she ran into a park, 
he chased her. She hid in a culvert and he taunted her saying, you have to come out sometime, although he gave up and left. Later that same day, he attempted again with two other girls, 13 and 14 years old, trying to use pornographic images as his enticement. After his arrest and trial, he was given 15 years for attempted kidnapping and showing obscene material to minors. However, he appealed, and his 15 years were reduced to six. In 1999, he was arrested again on sexual offenses and spent three years in an involuntary civil commitment facility. At that time, he was deemed a violent sexual predator under the state's Jimmy Rice Act, but he was released anyways. Incidentally, he was arrested for prowling one day after his son was born. He was arrested again in 2009 for posing as a Department of Children and Families employee and asking a nine-year-old sexual questions. The mother in that case did not want her daughter to testify because her young child was frightened, so the state allowed a plea bargain. Don, jailed in 2009 for this offense, was allowed to take a plea deal, which lowered his possible sentence of 20 years or more to less than two years. He was released from prison three weeks before Cherish was murdered. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. If there was ever a time to place a wine order, it would be right now. I have so enjoyed Wink's wine service and the variety of wines offered, which change often. Now, Wink's wine experts select wines matched to your taste. There's nothing like coming home to a box of delicious Wink wine selected just for you, which I just came home to a week ago. It's legit the best part of my month. There are no membership fees. You can skip any month and cancel any time. You can also send gifts to your friends or even to your mom if she's a wine connoisseur like me. Discover great wine today. Go to trywink.com slash truecrimefanclub and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash truecrimefanclub and you'll get $20 off your first shipment. In 1994, while in prison, Don married Francine, the mother of his son. In 1998, after being released from prison, Don was arrested again for buying crack from an undercover officer and for masturbating in a grocery store parking lot. His wife filed for divorce, citing Don's drug habits and sex offenses. She said, I want a better life. After Don's arrest for Cherish's murder and rape, the Duval County prosecutors did something unique. They wired his cell to record him. Recordings of phone calls and the use of jailhouse snitches, even having law enforcement pose as fellow inmates, was not new. But in his case, law enforcement decided to record his conversations with his cellmate, Randall Devaney, who was charged with killing his neighbor. He was also recorded while his mother, Patricia Moore, visited him in the Duval County Jail on July 9, 2013. The video opened with Don telling his mother the back of the courtroom was full of cameras, and he believed Jennifer Wall, anchor and reporter for a local TV station, was in the room. He then told his mother about a female inmate who knew his case, detail for detail for detail. He then said of this female inmate, it's probably because she was abused as a child or she's got kids or whatever. 
Don continued on by bragging to his mother that this was the most explosive case to come out of Jacksonville, and he would not have received this kind of press if he had tried to kill the president. He tells his mother, Yeah, this is way bigger than anything. This is way bigger than Anthony, referring to Casey Anthony's trial. After describing his charges in detail to his mother, he again bragged. Casey Anthony didn't have all that. She was missing, and look at that. They've got bodyguards all around her. They don't even know if the child's dead or not. She's just missing. He then warned his mother, it's huge, and it's bigger than the Jimmy Rice case or anything like that. Jimmy Rice was a nine-year-old boy from Redland, Florida, who was abducted on September 11, 1995, while walking one block from the bus stop to his home. He was abducted by Juan Carlos Chavez, who admitted to blocking Jimmy's path and forcing him into his truck at gunpoint. Juan Carlos then took Jimmy to his trailer, where he raped him. Four hours after he was abducted, Jimmy heard helicopters overhead and ran to the door of the trailer where he was shot in the back by Juan Carlos, who held him until he died. Jimmy's body was decapitated and dismembered. His remains were found three months later near the trailer. Juan Carlos was convicted in 1998 and sentenced to death for multiple charges, including capital murder, kidnapping, and sexual battery. That same year, the Jimmy Rice Act was unanimously voted on in the Florida legislature. This called for sexual offenders to be reviewed by several agencies to determine the level of risk of a sexual offender. Don Smith was actually reviewed as part of this act and released from his civilian commitment. After Don finished bragging to his mother, he launched into his account of what happened the night he kidnapped Cherish from Walmart. According to him, he had not planned on doing something like that, and if he did, it would not be in Walmart. He defended himself to his mother by saying, I took her to Walmart, I could have taken her anywhere, and that he knew Walmart had more cameras than a bank. His mother asked him something, and he explained that he was in the dollar store on Edgewood, and he was coked up and drinking. He spoke about Rain and how she was in the dollar store with three kids, he saw her put a dress back, so he asked the cashier about it. Don then went outside to smoke a cigarette, which is where he was when Rain came out. He told her he would give her a ride to Walmart, and they can buy a dress there. Rain hesitated, saying she didn't take rides from strangers. According to him, it started raining, so she agreed to ride with him to Walmart. They loaded her two-seat stroller into his van and went to Walmart. When they got there, he said he told her to buy a dress and a pair of shoes for her kid who was going to California the next morning to live with her real father. He then asked his mother, Do you understand what I'm saying? He told his mother that he asked Rain why, and she said, It was court-ordered, and then explained to his mother Rain was kind of dingy. Don said he asked Rain what she was doing later, then the audio is muffled. He said when they got in the store, she was hitting the kids, and they had been there for five minutes. He said he started shaking and getting manic thinking he needed to get out of there and feeling bad because he knew they were going to want to ride home. Don said to his mother, the intercom says the store is closing. Don made a gesture in the video as if he were confused, then said, it's a 24-hour Walmart, but not anymore. In his version, he told Rain he was going to go up front to get something to eat, but he did this so he could just leave. He then struggled to remember Cherish's name 
stating she came with him, but he told her to go back to her mom. Cherish allegedly told him, I'll come with you if you want McDonald's, to which he replied, no, go ask your mom, but Cherish refused. He went to McDonald's and asked if they were closed, then told them he was going to get his wallet. He claimed that he was halfway across the parking lot when Cherish came out and ran up to him. Don said he started panicking because security was right in front of his van. He's a sex offender and he cannot shake this eight-year-old girl. He told his mom that his mind just left him and he didn't care what, but Cherish had to go. I'm going to play a clip of Donald speaking to his mother, which may be a little difficult to hear, but we've tried our best to clear up the audio. I'm freaking out. 
Another earlier visit on June 28, 2013, Donald told his mother to buy him a copy of the DSM-5 so he could read on various symptoms of psychiatric disorders because mental illness was going to be his defense. He wanted to make sure he was bad enough to be able to get treatment and he would only be able to know that if he could read about it. In one other video, Don lamented to his mother that he didn't know what was wrong with him nor why professionals could not see it to fix it. He burst out. I was out three weeks. Three weeks. He told her he knew he was dead the minute he saw her, and that when the cops pulled him over, he considered acting like he had a gun so they would shoot him. Don told his mother the reason he did not do it, go out suicide by cop, was because he would not be able to tell her goodbye. He said, I had to see you one more time to tell you what happened. He told her he could not go to prison because they would kill him and he would never know when it was coming, so it would need to be death row or the hospital. Don said to her that at least on death row they would give him a shot and he would go to sleep peaceful and calm and he would be able to tell her he loved her. It would be several years before Don Smith went to trial and would learn whether he would be safe on death row or have to live in a general prison population that does not take well to child molesters. Many of the delays were because Florida was undergoing changes in the law concerning death penalty cases. The initial judge in the case, Judge Mallory Cooper, was set to retire before the case finally made it to court, but she asked to remain on the case. The trial began in early February 2018. 800 potential jurors were summoned for many court cases that week, but 300 were for the Don Smith trial. Many motions were put before Judge Cooper prior to the trial, including ones to suppress the video and audio recordings of Don in jail. 
Don's defense attorney, Julie Schlacks, also requested for a change of venue, which Judge Cooper denied. Additionally, Don's defense team tried to pull out of the case due to conflicts with another case, but they were denied. Julie tried to have 30 autopsy photographs blocked because, in her opinion, they were unnecessary and shocking. This was also denied. Prosecutors also wanted to block some information the defense team wanted to introduce about Rain Periwinkle's background, including that she said she was clairvoyant and had predicted Cherish would die by the time she was eight. Judge Cooper did not make an official ruling on that, stating she could have Rain testify with the jury out of the room to determine what was relevant. When the trial got underway, Rain was one of 12 state witnesses, where she repeated much of the same information she had provided in the 911 call. She was distraught and said she wanted to trust Don Smith. One of the last witnesses was Dr. Valerie Rao, once the chief medical examiner of Florida and the one who performed the autopsy on Cherish. She had actually gone to the scene where Cherish was found because of the severity of the case. Dr. Rao had done the sexual assault kit on Cherish and said there were multiple pieces of DNA on Cherish in her vagina, mouth, rectum, and also around her neck. She showed pictures to the jury highlighting injuries Cherish had suffered before her death and including insect bites after her death. Dr. Rao said she was strangled with such force that her brain was swollen. However, it still took Cherish between three to five minutes to die in such a manner. Dr. Rao was not sure what was used to strangle her, but it appeared as if it were a t-shirt and it was done with such force that there were skin abrasions. Cherish suffered such damage to her genitals that the anatomy was completely distorted and unrecognizable. Dr. Rao became emotional and asked for a five-minute break on the stand. The defense team called for a mistrial, and it was denied. Dr. Rao's testimony was so raw. She was making eye contact with the jury, who was audibly sniffing and holding back sobs. She began to show signs of distress during the questioning, and you can hear her voice trembling as she describes Cherish's injuries. If you are sensitive to autopsy descriptions, please skip forward about one and a half minutes. You mentioned earlier um, that during an autopsy, you take dissections. Yes. And you mentioned that you noticed... Um, an area in Cherish's back of her head? Where you, yes. So you shaved her head? Yes. And then um, cut her scalp so you could look at the injury more closely? Yes. And did you photograph that? Yes. And what um, I'm going to direct your attention now to States 84 and ask you to explain to the jury what is reflected here. Okay, so... When the scalp is reflected back, you have an area of hemorrhage right there. I'm sorry, where? Um, on the left side of her scalp right, right. there. And what, how is that caused, Dr. Rao? Um, blunt trauma. I'm going to show you two more photographs of the dissection taken of Cherish Periwinkle's throat. Will you first tell the jury what you saw when you... Um, Dissected her throat. Yes, so what we do is, it's, uh, I'm sorry, I have to take a break. Can I just have like five minutes? Do you want a five minute break? 
I think we'll all take a break for 10 minutes. Thank you. Prosecutor Mark Khalil said in his closing statement, he selected her. He lured her away from her family. He made her feel safe through his lies and his deception. And then he preyed upon her. He raped her. He sodomized her. He tore her apart. And then he took something. He wrapped it around that little girl's neck and he strangled the life out of her. Conversely, the defense did not present a closing statement. Don told them not to bother. In only 12 minutes, the jury reached a decision of guilty of first-degree murder and all counts and recommended execution. Judge Cooper went with the jury's recommendation and gave Don Smith a death sentence. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's my understanding the jury's reached a verdict. Is that correct? Uh, one of you is a four-person. Do you have the verdict forms? Thank you, sir. All right. Madam Clerk, if you would publish the verdicts. And the Circuit Court of the Fourth Judicial Circuit and of Fort Duval County, Florida, case number 16, 2013, CF 005787 of a felony to a kidnapping and sexual battery. Verdict count two, we the jury find the defendant guilty of kidnapping as charged in the indictment. We find the victim was under 13 years of age at the time of the offense. We find the defendant committed sexual battery on the victim during the commission of the offense. Verdict count three, we the jury find the defendant guilty of sexual battery upon a person less than 12 years of age as charged in the indictment. So say we all done at Jacksonville, Duval County, Florida. Signed the person, February 14, 2018. This court agrees with the jury's recommendation without reservation. Accordingly, this court finds that death is the only appropriate penalty for the defendant given the highly egregious nature of this crime. It's like I never thought this day would come, and now it's here, and now I'm just stumped for words. I just wish Terrence was here to see it. I don't move forward. I just exist now. I want to fight for children. That's my only thought in my head. And every day I'm reminded by what he's done. It's not fair that... I, I just don't know what to say. I want to strengthen laws keeping predators locked up where they should be so they don't have the chance to keep getting out to murder children to lure parents such as myself that were naive that day, did, that I wasn't thinking straight. I had three little children. I was by myself. I had no clue he was a predator. He was let out for 21 days before he did this. The police knew who he was. We as a community did not know who he was. Rain Periwinkle was given time to speak before sentencing. She looked him in the face and said, I will never see her get married and enjoy her life. He has taken that from me, and it can never be returned. I have so much rage inside of me because of what he did. I have never felt this much hatred in my life. She said she missed doing simple things like brushing Cherish's hair and making Kool-Aid together. I see reminders daily of what he took from me. Every white van I see is a horrible reminder of what he did and how she suffered. 
Every school bus I see is a reminder of Cherish. Cherish loved riding the school bus. I would go eagerly wait for her to come home and share her day with me. I feel the pain of losing Cherish every day. It has been four years and nine months, but for me, it will always feel like yesterday. Cherish's father, Billy, wrote a statement that attorney Gerald Wilkerson read. He said he never believed in angels before Cherish was murdered, but now he does. She was sweet, kind, funny, and pure love. I never really believed in monsters. I do now. And forever, the images of my child's last minutes on this earth will play out in my mind like a private internal hell that never ends. Sadly, although both parents spoke of Cherish as if she had an idyllic short life, that was not quite true. Rain and Billy were never married. They met in 2003 when he was a recently divorced sailor and she worked at a gentleman's club. In his own words, they had what amounted to a one-night stand, which left Rain pregnant. She informed him later she was expecting, but he wanted a paternity test for his military benefits, but she refused, basically telling him he should know it was his child. Three years later, when she attempted to get government assistance, a paternity test was ordered by a family court. He began paying child support when the results came back as positive. The court granted him visitation rights, increasing his visitations over the years. Billy said he went to court twice to obtain full custody of Cherish, but his attempts failed. He said he was concerned with Cherish living in the home with Rain. In 2010, Billy was transferred to a naval base in San Diego and requested Cherish spend the summers with him. Rain always fought sending her, and this was one reason he initially believed Cherish's disappearance as a ruse. He felt something was off on the night Cherish disappeared and said to reporters, I honestly think there's more to that story. I don't blame Rain, but I blame the decisions. When you look at what happened that night, it doesn't make sense, but I don't believe it was a coincidence that it just happened. It's not believable. Things were not always stable in either home. The Florida Department of Children and Family Services had checked on Rain Periwinkle several times over the years, at least twice specifically about Cherish. Rain struggled with severe psychiatric issues, including bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, and depression. She stopped taking her medication at one point because she did not want to become addicted. She once threw a plate at one of her stepchildren. One of the investigations concerning Cherish was when Rain was at a homeless shelter with her and was reported for violently shaking the four-year-old child for crying. In 2009, Rain attempted suicide by overdosing on Benadryl and was involuntarily committed. The same year, Billy was investigated for leaving a handprint on Cherish's back. There were also allegations he had beat her. One of Rain's boyfriends apparently left a bruise on Cherish's arm, but Rain explained it was just horseplay. She also told DCF investigators she was very sensitive to the possibility of her daughters being molested. She had an older daughter who had been molested and that child moved to Australia to get away from her mother. Cherish's father, Billy, had been court-martialed for sexual abuse of a child. Shortly after Cherish's death, her two younger sisters were taken out of the custody of Rain and placed in a foster home. The DCF allows 12 months for the parents to turn things around, but Rain was unable to do this, so the children were placed in a permanent, stable environment. 
in 2017, Cherish's two younger sisters, Destiny and Nevaeh, were adopted by one of Rain's sisters in Australia. Rain was not aware of this until another sister told her. Rain said it wasn't fair because she could not get or keep a job since people believed she was responsible for what happened to Cherish. After Cherish's death and Donald Smith's trial, Rain knew she was being tried in the court of public opinion, so she went on Dr. Oz to volunteer to take a lie detector test and a drug test to prove she had nothing to do with Cherish's death. She had been accused of trafficking her daughter for a gift card and that she had known Don Smith before the night he took Cherish. She told Dr. Oz and Nancy Grace, also a guest on that episode, she believed Don Smith had been stalking her for days. She also stated that the police did not believe her the night Cherish was abducted, based on the shortcomings in the investigation. The sheriff's department felt this way too, and on June 28, 2013, the Internal Affairs Department received a complaint from Director M.S. Williams on behalf of Sheriff Rutherford. The complaint cited the responses of personnel in the communication center, the patrol division, and the homicide unit. When Rain's call came into 911, the initial call was received by Police Communications Emergency Officer P.L. Robinson. Her role on the night of June 21, 2013, was to receive calls and determine the signal to use, then send the information regarding the calls to the dispatcher for that specific zone so the call could be dispatched to officers. When Officer Robinson received the call from Rain, she released it as a missing persons call rather than an abduction and did not include information to the other dispatchers that the mother was afraid the man was going to kill or rape her daughter. Officer Robinson said she realized as she continued to talk to Rain for 11 minutes that it sounded more like a kidnapping, but I thought she was lying. It didn't seem, um, like it was real. When asked why she did not include these statements with her dispatch, Officer Robinson said she just felt like she needed to talk, so I let her talk. Additional personnel in the communication center were interviewed by Internal Affairs, but they were going on the information provided to them by Officer Robinson. The final determination of this portion of the investigation was that Officer Robinson erred in putting out the call as a missing child rather than an abduction, and she was suspended for three days. Six officers were also disciplined during the investigation for mishandling of the case. Some of these failures related to failing to get an air unit in a timely fashion, failure to notify the press, and failure to take the mother seriously. When the responding officers arrived on the scene, they believed Rain was faking the situation in an effort to keep her child from going to California the following morning. The officers found it hard to take her seriously because she claimed to be psychic and that she never actually cried tears during their conversations with her. She also claimed when they brought Cherish back to her, it would be in a box. Sergeant Lonnie Mills led the investigation and he stated, From a normal parental standpoint, some of the things that the mother did were things that a rational parent would not do. These were the reasons Sergeant Mills did not request additional detectives until 2.15 a.m. when the case was changed to a kidnapping. He did contact his supervisor, Homicide Lieutenant Robert Schoonover, at 12.10 to apprise him of the situation, but at that time, it was still a missing child. Lieutenant Schoonover said to keep him posted, which was appropriate at the time because Mills was not exactly sure what the call-out entailed, 
and would not know until he and his detectives arrived at the scene. Sergeant Mills did not reach Walmart until 12.53 a.m. Sergeant Mills cited Rain's odd behavior in more detail during the investigation. He said she moaned and cried, but he never saw tears. He also thought it was odd that she had just met the suspect, but had accepted a ride from him and allowed him to take her daughter to buy food. He also thought it was strange that Rain's boyfriend was calling Walmart to find out what was happening, but Rain did not have a cell phone or any way of contacting him. However, Sergeant Mills said he finally realized, no matter how disturbing the mother's behavior was, there was a child missing, and he decided it was an abduction and an Amber Alert needed to be issued. It was 2.15 a.m. when he made the decision they were investigating an actual abduction. He contacted his lieutenant and updated him, but Lieutenant Shunover did not advise if he would respond or not. Lieutenant Shunover okayed the Amber Alert, but did not give Sergeant Mills any further details on how to use it. Cherish was not entered into the Florida Crime Information Center and National Crime Information Center until 2.40 a.m., several hours after she had left the store with the suspect. This was well beyond the two-hour allowance by operation standards, but Sergeant Mills believed he was in compliance since he just decided at 2.15 that he was working a kidnapping. Sergeant Mills was unsure if a public information officer had been contacted or not and had to read instructions on how to issue an Amber Alert on his laptop. Sergeant Mills failed to notify CART, the child abduction and rescue team early in the investigation, because he did not feel it was appropriate. CART was not notified until 5.45 a.m. the next day. Sergeant Mills also told Internal Affairs he had spoken with Lieutenant Shunover several times during the night, although he did not note these calls in his report or on the timeline. Lieutenant Shunover was questioned by Internal Affairs, and he stated that in the 2.20 a.m. call from Sergeant Mills, he was advised that the suspect had walked around Walmart with the mom and children for a couple of hours. And their surveillance showed this and the suspect exit the store. And the little girl followed him. No abduction, doesn't grab her and doesn't force her out. Lieutenant Shunover said Sergeant Mills had concerns about the mother because of her odd behavior and also because of the visitation in California the next day. Lieutenant Shunover gave Sergeant Mills permission to issue an Amber Alert. Lieutenant Shunover did not respond to the scene, and the next time he spoke to Sergeant Mills was at 5.45 a.m. Lieutenant Shunover provided investigators with a copy of his cell phone bill, which showed three calls from Sergeant Mills between 12.14 a.m. and 5.43 a.m. The first call, the notification of the missing child, was one minute in length. The next two calls were four minutes each. Lieutenant Shunover contacted Assistant Chief Butler's cell phone at 5.48 a.m. and got voicemail. He then called the Assistant Chief's home phone and the call lasted for 13 minutes. The Amber Alert was not issued until around 4.30 a.m., five hours after Rain called 911. As a result of the findings of the Internal Affairs investigation, Sergeant Mills and Lieutenant Shunover were both removed from the homicide unit and Shunover was suspended for three days. Unfortunately, no one will ever know if a quicker response time could have saved Cherish's life. What is known is that in her eight short years, the system and the adults in her life failed her. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, 
my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com. <laughs>